Happy Easter. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be together in worship with you today. Uh, this is indeed a very exciting day to worship the Lord and celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God, our Savior, Messiah, Jesus. He is risen. Good. Stay ready. Very good. Amen. One of the habits here at Calvary Monument Bible Church that we like to participate in is the memory of the scriptures. And so uh, we have been working through uh, the last number of months the book of Exodus. And so we're memorizing various verses from this book. And we can participate in this month's memory verse for the month of April together today. Would you say it with me? And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Exodus 29, 46. Very good, thank you. Well, Easter morning is a morning that should never cease to captivate us, nor to stir our imaginations. And our narrative today is taken directly from the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you want to Take them, you want to turn them on or open them up to Matthew chapter 28. The events of the day that were taking place then, leading up until now, were full of difficult emotions. There was anger, hostility, betrayal, violence, denial, deception, Lies and death. Crucifixion that day was among the most utterly shaming and humiliating forms of punishment known to the ancient world. And still settling into this new reality of life without Jesus, there is a group of his earliest followers who are endeavoring to navigate through the fog and the sting of death to come and inspect his tomb. And as they approach, there is much that is working against their hope. Have you ever felt like there are things in the world today that are working against our hope? Fear, as we shall soon see, is a powerfully paralyzing emotion. Both religion and state stood in opposition to Jesus. There were guards at the tomb. They were employed by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. And Pilate, the governor, appointed by Rome, he had approved of the execution. But something, or perhaps someone, is moving these early disciples beyond their fears. And as we enter into what is both a precious and monumentally shocking scene, 
we arrive today with three questions to explore. First, after witnessing the death of Jesus, what is it that these who were among his earliest disciples might still be seeking? Then, when we see the presence of fear in the narrative and in our lives, how can we still find ourselves compelled towards patterns of faithfulness? And finally, what is the truth within the tomb? And how does that truth motivate us to live with great purpose and effect today? Before we turn to the scriptures, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, what a day. What a beautiful, glorious, wonderful day to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. The words that came to my mind this morning were words of worthiness. He is worthy because he has conquered sin and death. The light of the world, the light of the world who doesn't only dwell high above us, but he dwells with us and within us. The living hope that Pastor Tom shared of resides in our very hearts and moves us, compels us, empowers us to live with great effect in this world. Father, today we need to be captivated again by this narrative. We need to be reminded. Our imaginations need to be stirred and we need to see the life that is in these words and the life that's in these words, the life that's in your Son that inhabits us needs to become real as we surround the tables with our families today and share and reflect and encourage and embrace the life that comes only in relationship with your Son. He was worthy. He was victorious. And because he lives today, we hold on to the living hope that we too will one day live with you. Lord, let your text motivate our lives and stir us to action today and onward. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 28, we will read verses 1 through 10. The resurrection. Now after the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Suddenly there was a severe earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were shaken, 
and became like dead men because they were so afraid of him. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. But Jesus met them, saying, Greetings! They came to him, held on to his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. This was very much a morning that shattered all expectations. And we might imagine that following Jesus' death, the next several days were passing in a painstakingly slow fashion. Following the Sabbath, as this text reveals, along with some of the other Gospels, we know that several women, including Salome, Mary Magdalene, and another also named Mary, they were venturing to the tomb of Jesus. What were they seeking? The account in Matthew does not give us much detail, simply that they were going to look at the tomb. Other accounts tell us that they were interested in anointing Jesus' body. Perhaps some tagging along to simply remember and reflect on Jesus' life and his powerful influence and legacy. The text invites us to explore something that is different about this group. These women, they have not betrayed Jesus, nor have they denied him. They did not scatter when he faced death on the, on the cross. This is a group of his followers who had truly counted the cost of discipleship. They understood sacrifice. They had just witnessed it in its highest ideal. They were not locked away. They were not hiding in rooms waiting for what might be next. Rather courageous, active, desiring to find audience with Jesus, even if that meant serving him in his death. And throughout this narrative, throughout the end of Jesus' narrative, the end of his life, we have been presented with many characters that were seeking or looking for something. There was Judas. He was looking for a quick dollar. Peter, he was looking for his own self-preservation. The religious leaders sought their own justification. Pilate looked for a way out. Barabbas found his. 
One thief looked at Jesus unto death. The other looked at him unto life. The Roman soldiers were looking to persecute, provoke, and profit. Jesus looked to the crowds and offered forgiveness. Do you remember? He looked to John and he offered provision and protection for his mother. Then he looked to the father and he offered his body as a living sacrifice. Joseph of Arimathea, at the removal of Jesus' body from the cross and the preparation of his body for burial, the text tells us that he was seeking a kingdom, one that Jesus himself had preached and promised. Everyone is looking for something. Are we searching for the right things? And how would we know if we were. One of my friends asks the question frequently when he runs into people, what are you hoping in? Or what are you hoping for? If our destination is a tomb, then our expectations are usually to come and remember, to reflect to grieve, to mourn. And in doing all of these things, I suspect many of us are worshiping. The disciples in our text this morning, they're coming to do the same or similar things. And if service, sacrifice, presence with Jesus and worship are our priorities, then we can rest assured that we are seeking the right things. Perhaps, though, the most reasonable expectations that one might approach a tomb with surround expectations related to finality, death, sadness, grief. But verse 2 in Matthew 28 guides us to this earth shaking moment. Just the opening word should shock us. What is it? Suddenly. Suddenly is like a literary flashing light. Something is about to happen that is entirely unexpected. Something that is going to shatter expectations. In this case, it's not just a rumble, but the scriptures actually describe a severe earthquake. And when we see in the scriptures, when we come to an earthquake, it's usually accompanied by some kind of supernatural event. This event is a clue. Something significant is about to happen, or in this case, may already have. And what we see here parallels closely with the birth announcement of Jesus earlier in Matthew. There, it was a great light followed by an angelic announcement. Here, the angel descends. And the tomb, the stone that covered the tomb is rolled away. By the way, that tomb had one job, or that stone had one job. 
and it failed. A one to two ton stone simply rolled away. And in a sign of instant conquest, perhaps, once the angel removed the stone, what did he do? Just, he sat right on that thing. His appearance was magnificent. The text tells us that he was bright like lightning. His clothes were white as snow, and it's shocking to the guards who were there. Guards, by the way, who did not have any hope or expectation of a resurrection. It's so shocking that these guards who had been placed by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, seemingly faint or become paralyzed by their fear. And while these strong, armed, weapon-holding guards are busy fainting in fear, the women are also filled with fear, but they remain standing. Could the very one that they were seeking also be the very one who was holding them up through both an earthquake and a sudden angelic appearance? Is this not what great hope can do? Does Jesus not hold us? When the winds and the waves and the storms and the earthquakes and the unexpected visitors in our lives threaten to paralyze us with fear. The guards, the guards, no expectation, no hope of any kind of resurrection or elopement from the tomb. But the women, they were holding on to a hope, a hope that had now become historical reality. And the angel, having dealt with the guards, he now turns his attention to these truly courageous women on the scene and notice that their courage does not indicate an absence of fear. Fear is present, but their fear is not controlling them. Friends, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the willingness to be present with purpose and effect even when we feel afraid. You see, the angel knows that the women are afraid, but he also knows who they came looking for. He knows both. First, words of peace. Do not be afraid. Then words of comfort. I know who you are looking for. This trip to the tomb, it had not necessarily delivered what the women were expecting. Now, God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Rather, the tomb's emptiness 
is going to spark emotions of hope and fear. Where is Jesus? Where is he? Again, the angel, I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. At least three times in Jesus' life and ministry, he testified to the reality that he would raise from the dead. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, and Matthew 20. And now, there's a powerful invitation from the angel to do what? Come and see. Hmm. Jesus. Always true to his word, but few times in the way that we expect or anticipate it. He had resurrected. He had risen just as he said he would. And here we find from the angel an invitation that's effective and useful for us today. Church, don't miss this. Because it is a great invitation for us to use today. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see the Savior of the world who gives life, who is love, who inspires hope, who motivates faith. Jesus, the the greatest that's ever been or ever will be. He is not dead. Amen? Come and see. He is risen. There is life with him. Life that is filled with hope. The hope of good things to come. Both now and for eternity. Come and see. Church, why do we gather? Why do we do this today? Why do we do this every Sunday? Why do we gather midweek? Why do we care for one another when we're sick, when we're hurting, when we're in need? Why do we come together and pray? Why do we pray in private? Why do we bear the needs of the saints and carry one another's burdens? Because he lives. Come and see. This congregation, congregations all over the world that gather and worship and sing and celebrate, there to be testimonies, evidences of the reality that Jesus is alive with effect, doing exactly what he said he was going to do. I will build my what? Church. He's doing it. Come and see. And after the women accept the invitation of the angel, I think it's beautiful. Now he gives them a message to share with others. Verse 7. Come and see. Then go quickly and tell the disciples he's been raised from the dead. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. First, come and see, but then don't stay. Do what? Go and tell. Go and tell. And along the way, Jesus is going to be present, both with us and with us before us 
I love it. This good news that the angel gives to the women to proclaim, it's simple and it's relevant for today. Jesus has risen from the dead. We can still experience his presence and one day we too will see him with our own eyes. Amen? Amen. And when the angel says, listen, there's like an exclamation mark there in the text. It implies that his words are going to influence the women's actions, and indeed they do. Verse 8 describes for us how his words affect and move them to action. It says, so they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. There's other accounts. There's a lot of running going on that morning. That's exciting, right? Other accounts tell us that two disciples race to the tomb. Here the women are running to go tell him. There's all this back and forth, and it's just because of the excitement of what has happened, what has taken place. And by the way, today a lot of us are still going to be running, aren't we? Running to find baskets, <laughs> running to hunt for eggs, running to make the Easter ham, making sure it doesn't burn, right? Running to do all kinds of things. There's excitement on these days when we gather and celebrate, and rightfully so. We should be excited about serving a risen Lord. It's so interesting. Fear had paralyzed the guards. They were terrified. But fear and great joy are moving these women to take swift action. And by the cultural and social standards of the ancient Near Eastern world, their testimony should have been largely dismissed or ignored. But it was not. Something had so utterly transformed and compelled them that their words simply couldn't be ignored. It's so intriguing. The testimony of the scriptures is powerful. God chose Mary, a young, poor mother, to carry and bear his son into the world. And now he chooses a group of women to deliver what may be the most powerful and magnificent message ever proclaimed. They would be the first to publicly proclaim the most important message ever given. And their dawn had begun with a trip to the tomb to look at the tomb. But their day was going to bring them to the feet of their risen Lord. Verse 9, as they went, Jesus met them. Jesus met them, saying, greetings. <laughs> they came to him, held on to his feet, and worshipped him. I'm not sure if we can fully grasp the glory of this moment. This is incredible. When you consider, and we consider together, that just a few days prior, they had seen Jesus die on the cross. They had seen him taken down 
from the cross. They had seen him wrapped and placed in a tomb, witnessed the stone rolled over the front. This was not supposed to be happening. Greetings. Now again, probably rightfully so, their fear is rekindled as they're seeing with their own eyes a man who had just died. And they're not only seeing him, but this is so important, church, the resurrection it was physical. Jesus isn't a ghost or an apparition or some immaterial spirit. He is physically alive in the fullness of his body. And we know because when they fall at his feet, they're touching him. Living, breathing flesh. Greetings. There's a pattern here that's woven into this verse. Three specific verbs in the second half. And it's not they came, they saw, they conquered. Not those. Rather, they came, they clung, they worshipped. A humble spirit falling at the feet of Jesus in a spirit of worship. As I was preparing this week, my mind was taken back, spending time in Matthew and his gospel, my mind was taken back to Jesus' great sermon. We remember early in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, it begins, Jesus had spoken that the kingdom of heaven would belong to people behaving in the same or similar manners as these women. And this is what the resurrected Messiah should still motivate within disciples of Jesus today. Church, we come, we cling, we worship. This is what we do. We come together holding on to Jesus and we worship we do it together. One unifying message today that we celebrate, that we can joyfully and boldly proclaim, He is risen. He is risen Amen. He is the risen Lord. He is the well that we gather around. The water, the living water that we can cling to for abundant life. He's the one that we worship. And his resurrection has the power because he's one body to unite the church around a living hope, a living communal hope, life, faith, light, love. We can share in these things and partake in them together because he lives. Oh, our world is so divided. There's so much divisiveness and polarization and the reports come out seemingly every week that show it's only growing. We're not growing closer together in the world today, unfortunately, because of the patterns of this world and because in some ways we adopt them and live according to them. We're growing further apart. And the church has one body 
to gather around. We're saved to a person, a living person, and his name is Jesus. And he's not just the well for the church to gather around and partake of together, but he's also a well that we are to invite others, those who do not yet know him and have not experienced the life that he can give. We are to invite them to come and to see and participate and experience his goodness and his grace and his mercy with us. This is what Jesus does right here. He now instructs the women. You see, clinging to his feet and worshiping him, perhaps their temptation would be to stay there. I wouldn't blame them. I can't wait. They seemingly had lost him once. Would they be courageous enough to let him go again? Verse 10, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. You see, friends, what we celebrate today, what we cling to, what we worship, person of Jesus, he cannot stay contained within these walls. We've been given a message to proclaim And upon the conclusion of our time together this morning, it's going to be our turn to get up and to go out and to continue to share the good news both through our words and our actions. The brothers that they were going to, they weren't going to receive the good news in the synagogue. Nor were they going to hear it preached in the temple. But rather, on the streets or in a home in Galilee, of the Gentiles. That's what Galilee was known as in those days. Because it was good news not just for those of Jewish heritage, but it's good news for all of the world. Feelings of fear, church, we see them throughout this narrative. The feelings of fear are often going to be present. The spirit within us is greater than those feelings. He can move and compel us towards patterns of love and power and self-discipline, going, sharing, and worshiping all the way. Knowing that our living God is within us and before us and behind us and above us, He is leading us. He is our guide. He is the image that we desire or should desire to be formed into. And the women in Matthew's account, they give us this testimony of working through their feelings of fear to bring glory and honor to God in their faithfulness and their obedience. But this is not the only part of Matthew's resurrection narrative. Eventually, those guards woke up. Did you know that? They regained their strength, whatever had happened to them. And when they did, they were still very much afraid. And contrasting them to the women, how did their fears compel them 
What did their fears lead them to do and participate in? Matthew digs deeper, giving us a contrast between the guards at the tomb and the women at the tomb. Though the women were fearful, they listened, and they were comforted and compelled to action. They were faithful. They were obedient. They were courageous. The guards, on the other hand, did an entirely different thing with their fear. First, their fear paralyzed them, even causing them to faint. Then, their fear compels them to run in the wrong direction and participate in behaviors and ways of thinking that are wholly incongruent with the ways of God. Look at verse 11. While they were going, that is the women, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Tattletales. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if it comes to the governor, governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. As it turns out, church, fear can compel folks towards all kinds of difficult and sinful behaviors. In this case, the power and the truth and the life and the reality of the resurrection was far too much for the religious leaders and authorities to bear. For many today, for many in our lives today, the reality of the resurrection is still a truth with consequences that are too heavy to bear. They simply can't accept it. They deny it. They reject it. They turn away. Some of us have friends in our lives who we dearly love that refuse to believe this truth, the truth of the resurrection, that He is risen. And rather than believe a truth in order to protect their political power and religious authority and economic interest, the chief priests along with the elders take counsel and they assign bribe money to the soldiers at the tomb and concoct a lie to deceive and disorient the people. This is what lies do, friends. They even make provisions in the case that the governor would be notified and, they, and seek to discipline the guards for failing to do their job at the tomb. Money is a powerful master and has a way of keeping people silent while enslaving and entangling them and others in lies and deceit. And as Matthew was writing his gospel, he knew the lie that the religious leaders had concocted was still holding many people in bondage while he wrote. Church, lies still enslave people today. And freedom is still available in the way, the truth, and the life. His name 
is Jesus. And this is a day that we celebrate that truth, the truth of Jesus' victory over sin and death. A victory that he secured when the power of God resurrected and restored his lifeless body in the tomb. And so a final thought or question. How should the truth of Jesus' resurrection guide the formation and the patterns of our lives today? When the other disciples heard and realized that Jesus had risen from the dead, it completely transformed the trajectory of their lives. In an instant, hope was restored. And as believers of the resurrection, followers of Jesus, we should be the most hopeful, inspiring, and thankful people in the world. To think that we, church, each and every one of us, can be in a real and personal relationship with the King who conquered death. Who shares his abundant and eternal life with all who believe. This should make us incredibly joyful. The son of God who's promised to build his church. Even in the face of great opposition. Continues to build his church today. And he will not fail. Amen. He cannot. He cannot fail to be less than what he said he was going to be and do less than what he said he was going to do. The greatest leader and guide that this world has ever known, he will not grow weary or faint and he will not allow us to either. And as we find ourselves depending on him, we find strength in weakness. What a hopeful and life-giving reality for us to celebrate. Because he lives, we too will live. And while we are alive today, his purpose is to work through his disciples to build his church. A project that he promised will not fail. Wow. That's like getting to the Super Bowl. And just being told, no matter what, you're going to win. <laughs> Run a reverse every play. You're going to win. He will not faint. He won't grow weary. Not only should we be counted among the most hopeful people because of this, but the truth of the resurrection, it also fills us with great purpose. We don't have to live aimlessly. So many in the world don't have that purpose or that focus. And so they, they begin life and, and they start to ask, what am I doing? Where am I going? What's happening? And over time, they face defeat and brokenness and apathy sets in. We don't have to ask or wonder about what we should be doing. Jesus has told us. Isn't that great? Go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. What a great purpose. However you're doing it, as a plumber, as a doctor, as a teacher, as a lawyer, as a bricklayer, as an accountant, whatever it is, a banker, a churchman, a missionary, 
Whatever it is, we have purpose. Jesus fills us with life. He gives us hope. He sets us forward with great purpose. We're called to grow in our love for him and our love for one another. We're commanded to love and serve and commissioned to share the good news, the life-giving news with others. We do this with our words. We do this with our lives. We lift. We carry one another's burdens. We hold. We cling to Jesus. We gather. We sing. We celebrate. We share. We pray. We study God's word. We breathe life into the communities that God has planted us in. What a great purpose. What a way for the church to shine and have effect in the world today to be a beacon of hope and life. And love in a world filled with darkness, purposelessness, and hate. Blooming where he has planted us. Endeavoring to make our lives, our attitudes, our behaviors, our habits a sacrifice of praise and worship to our mighty, resurrected King. So church today and every day, as children of life and light, adopted into the family of God, we are called to live into these life-giving patterns of faith, hope, and love, sharing the good news that is available, powerful, and effectively used of God to restore and reconcile others to himself. And I would suggest that perhaps today as we gather with families, friends, loved ones around tables, that we would take time to reflect and to share, and to speak life-giving and hope-filled words that God might use today, tomorrow, or even in the future to captivate, to stir, and awaken the heart or mind of a family or friend or loved one who has not yet believed. We never know how Jesus is working through our deeds, through our words, even today, to draw someone to himself. So that they too might experience the victory of the resurrected life. As our team comes, let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of the saints in your word today. The contrast, Lord, between the behaviors of your disciples and the behaviors of the guards. Lord, we live with great hope today because Jesus, your Son, is risen from the dead. And that is powerful, effective, and transformative truth that should guide the very course of our lives. Lord, we continue to worship through song now, continue to celebrate, and soon we will leave this place and move on from here Help us be light. Help us have effect as salt right where you've placed us. And might we turn and give you the glory for everything you accomplish in and through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.